Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we are back. Happy New Year from this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We've been off for a little more than a week, so there's a good amount of stuff to catch up on. Some big news did happen during the holiday break. I'm Chris Quinn. You're with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnson, and Chris Ranowski, who I hope all had a restful holiday break. It was great. Definitely. <laughs> and all revved up to get back. We got a lot of news to start pursuing. I can't believe how much news actually happened during the usual news-free holidays. It was amazing. I know. there was. There's some really good stuff, starting on Christmas Eve and all the way up through, really, New Year's Eve. And we're going to talk about some of it, so let's begin. Was Ohio Governor Mike DeWine right to boast on national television Sunday about the increasing pace of coronavirus vaccinations in the state? Jane Coon, I'm going to answer this. No, no way. Absolutely not. I can't believe he had the audacity to do that. Ohio is doing a terrible job. So let's talk about it. I was just going to say, okay, on to the next question now that you've answered (laughs) that one. Yeah, he portrayed the state as as acting with all kinds of urgency on this, but the the results so far really don't bear that out. The states received over half a million doses and about 160,000 have been administered. That's that's only about 1.4% of Ohioans. So he talked a lot about, you know, the groups that they were vaccinating and made a point of saying that 61% of nursing home residents statewide had, had received their first dose. And he said in another week, we'll be at 80%. And then after another week after that, we should, you know, be done with this first round of shots at the nursing homes. But, you know, According to um, data that the Washington Post compiled, Ohio has ranks like last, uh, tied with Dead last. For the, yeah, <laughs> in the percentage of the total state population to receive uh, a vaccine, and and also low on you know the the prioritized population to receive a vaccine. Last week, DeWine did have a, a briefing where he said, you know, there's a moral imperative to get the vaccines out and they should be administered within 24 hours of institutions receiving them. And he did note that some hospitals have talked about difficulties they've had, like scheduling vaccine clinics for employees. And then like an expected shipment doesn't arrive that day or, you know, the larger hospitals have said it can take a, a day to get the vials out to their smaller hospitals in the system. And Others are having problems uploading their data to the state system. Surprise, surprise. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> anyway, so that's the, um, I'm just G- telling you. Given the success of OSU and the Browns, I'm throwing two yellow flags here because this, <laughs> this is preposterous. Look, you know, you know what's disappointing about this is we were asking months ago in the briefings, what, what is the process by which you're going to wheel out the vaccine? It wasn't just us. It was the entire Columbus press corps. What, what's the infrastructure for getting this vaccine out? What are you doing? And we always got these very vague, we're working on it, we're working on it. Clearly, they weren't working on it because there is no good infrastructure. They're not delivering. And, and very quickly, we're in the position where we have lots more vaccine 
that then we can deliver. And that's a problem because every day you don't use your vaccine, people get sick and people die. I, I just was stunned for him to put a rosy picture on this yesterday when we're last in the in the country in in what's happening. And look, I got to tell you, it's this is like the second highest, second biggest priority subject in the emails I get from the audience. The first is always, why aren't you doing the Hunter Biden story from that jobs who just aren't paying attention? <laughs> but but this is something people keep saying, look, what's going on? What are you going to do more stories about this? Why aren't they doing a good job in getting this out there? And we have yet to get a decent answer from them about how this will happen. For instance, say say we suddenly had the vaccines we needed to go to a much wider population. How would you do it? I mean, there's no place to register so that you could you can get a place in line. I know some people in Florida, they have places where people are registering and, and they're getting notified as they become eligible. There's no place for us to do that. What is Mike DeWine and his health department doing? What have they been doing for the last six months. Does anybody have a clue? You know, I remember them. I remember, remember DeWine went to that facility where the National Guard was practicing, you know, getting the vaccines out and everything. But that, to me, that wasn't like, it, it was, it wasn't indication that they have an infrastructure for this. But, you know, I don't, I don't know the answer to your question, but of course we're trying to find out. And then there's the distressing thing we're hearing about hospitals. We keep hearing it, that they're giving the vaccines to people who have nothing to do with patients, their office administrators. And God, you just hope that's not true. Uh, we haven't we haven't really dug into that as a story. Chris Warnowski. Oh, I, I was just going to say that what I think what's so depressing about this is 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 that this is the the basket where we put all of our eggs, you know, in in lieu of of, you know, stauncher requirements for masks for for greater restriction on non-essential businesses all of this was you know we were allowed to go and eat at restaurants under the sort of idea that well the vaccine is coming and the vaccine is coming and we kept hearing that that you know there's there's you know we're turning we're rounding the corner there's light at the end of the tunnel every every shopworn cliche that mike dewine has in his little satchel and here we are we have the vaccine and we're blowing it and but but you know what's i think what what is disappointing is that we had any other expectation that that they would find, <laughs> that they would find a way to do it because i mean you, you look at what a colossal cluster you know the 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 testing p part of this has been you know i mean we still don't have ready access of te for testing for people you know and so why would we why would we think that the vaccine would be any different and you know that's a really good point it's like it's the it's the line you had one job to do and you're right <laughs> yeah. he, he teed this up he kept saying the vaccine the vaccine the vaccine but it doesn't appear that they did very, they did much at all yeah. to be ready for the vaccine and so now we're embarrassingly bad across the nation. What what do we have to do to get the vaccine? Do we have to move to other states temporarily to get in line? It's like one of the one of the more mind-boggling things. I hope, Jane Cahoon, that when he has a press briefing this week, that we and the rest of the press corps are all over him for this failure to take care of the citizens of Ohio. Of course. <laughs> all right. You're back to work. Yes, it's back to work. Lots to do. And this next story is one of them. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
How much first energy money went to a nonprofit group that purported to represent Cleveland public power customers, but now appears to have existed solely to attack the city-owned utility? Chris Ranowski, this story broke right before Christmas, Christmas Eve. It, it is a blockbuster of a story because it brings the whole statehouse bribery scandal right into Cleveland, and it's really sinister. So bring us up to date. I have to say, I, I'm surprised you didn't drag us all out of our Christmas celebrations to do. <laughs> a podcast about this because I I could tell you were really really itching to talk about it. <laughs> it killed me. <laughs> um yeah, so there were some filings that came out, some nonprofit filings that came out last week or a couple weeks ago that that illustrated that there was a dark money effort to undermine Cleveland public power that was bankrolled by about $200,000 uh from First Energy that came through this uh this pass through company or pass through organization that they had, they had created that was sort of designed to go out and lobby on behalf of, of first energy. And, and, and what, what's a little shady about all of this is, is that it was under the guise of this, this organization in Cleveland called consumers against deceptive fees. And in 2019, that organization took uh, $200,000, uh, from this group that was called, and I want to make sure that I get the, the name right here. It was called Partners for Progress, which was established back in 2017 with the help of Columbus lobbyist and, uh, uh, you know, DeWine top aide Dan McCarthy. And, and, and the FBI sort of called this a pass through or, uh, or nonprofit that was used to, to basically hold first energy money, uh, before former Ohio speaker Larry Householder and his, his allies funneled that money elsewhere, according to federal investigators. And Partners for Progress doled out about $13 million to an organization called Generation Now, which then, then moved some of that money into this, this consumers against deceptive fees, which is, is now defunct. But basically what they were doing was undermining Cleveland public power. And it appears that they were doing so in, in order to benefit First Energy, which is its its com- only competitor here in Cleveland. So let me let me let me, let me stop you there because okay. because there's 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 some stuff to unpack here mm-hmm. that that really offers some pathways to more sinister theories. The key thing this group tried to do through their attorney Subodh Chandra was to shop a story about a study that Cleveland commissioned about Cleveland Public Power that the city rejected because they found its findings were def- defamatory almost in being preposterous. And the report mm-hmm. was never, never finished. So we actually didn't run this because the city successfully argued to us that this was a proprietary study that had basically been stolen. That, and, and our lawyers agreed you did not have First Amendment rights to it. But but the whole time this was being pushed by this group, it, it, you know, it, it, the argument is this report shows CPP is in disastrous shape, what the city says is not true. And the city suggested that First Energy was behind this, that they were that they, that they wanted to have a full investigation by city council to find out where the funding for this group came from, which, you know, there were there were people out there scoffing at. Turns out it was all true. Right. This was a first energy front. This was a group that was trying to undermine CPP, which raises the question, 
were the allegations or the, or the findings in this study that Cleveland found so objectionable somehow influenced by by First Energy? And when it didn't become public released, they created this phony group to get it into the public consciousness. Well, I don't want to answer that question. Because <laughs> We're going to find the answer to that question. We are going yeah. to get to the bottom of that. I mean, I think one way or the other, the the answer to that will come out. Uh, you know, I, I just it, it, it was. You know, when, when this story hit, you know, when I read it, cause I, I was off and, and, and frankly not paying attention to my emails that much over the holiday. But when it hit, this was, this was staggering, but, but it was also, you know, it was, it was, it also made perfect sense. You know, that, that was the, you know, to get at what you were sort of explaining there, it, it, that, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's Occam's razor, you know, it, it is the, it is the simplest explanation that makes the most sense. It well, is. But, but there's also more evidence in a story. Another story you handled, mm-hmm. Tony George mm-hmm. tried to get a Cleveland public power contract while he was an agent for first energy in some way. And when he didn't get it, he launched a big movement to reduce the number of council members. Mm-hmm. Was that all part of a first energy plan to change the council so that it could somehow subvert pub- Cleveland public power? Jane Cahoon, the, the the state house scandal was big enough, right? It was a, a one point three billion dollar scandal, sixty million in bribes, but or in money put into bribes. But this makes you wonder: with this battle going on in Cleveland at the same time they were working to get House Bill Six, does First Energy have a record all over the state of doing kind of sleazy things to take out competition? I, I think one of the things we're going to have to do in twenty twenty one is look everywhere they have competition and see what other dirty tricks might have been played. Yes, Chris, we do have a lot of work to do here. There's <laughs> a theme emerging here. Of yes. a lot of work to do. Hey, man, it's the first day of the new year. That's what we do. Look, the thing the thing about, you're right, Chris, I was, I, I was working that day. I was talking to John Canigli. I worked with him on the story. This thing opens a can of worms like I've never seen. I think the first energy story, the, as big as it was in 2020, is going to get bigger in 2021. And this has big meaning. If this is all correct, Cleveland Public Power probably has a very good lawsuit that could change the whole dynamic of electricity providing in the city of Cleveland. So we do have work to do, and we will do it, rest assured. It's this week in the CLE. How has the Cuyahoga County Health Board bungled its role in providing coronavirus vaccinations? Laura Johnson, we've talked previously about how the state seems to be doing a very poor job, but the Cuyahoga County Health Board, which has not distinguished itself through this pandemic, really kind of goofed up again. Yeah, it's really not helping the situation. And it's just the latest in the uh, missteps when it comes to COVID. But the Board of Health website accidentally allowed people who are not yet eligible to receive a COVID-19 vaccine to register for one. And Health Commissioner Terry Allen said the link was intended only for healthcare workers, first responders, the residents and staff of congregate care facilities. But apparently this link was public and people just had to forward it to their friends or family and say, hey, sign up here. Um, and that's how other people got to sign up. So the board's going to cancel all appointments made by people who are not um, not yet eligible. But I mean, it this is kind of, you know, another one of those mind boggling situations. We're this far behind in vaccinating. Can't we get the people who should be signed up, signed up? Um so, yeah, um, they added an extra step of protection to make up for this mess up. Yeah, they're going to ask people if they're eligible. 
Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's where we stand. And you're gonna, yeah, you have to show your driver's license to prove you're not you're you're not faking who you are. I it just it, it look it's a it's a gotcha, it's a goof, but but again. They had months to plan for this, months and months. And nobody thought if we put a link up that doesn't have some kind of guidelines, people who aren't eligible will sign up because they think they can. They they acknowledge they don't believe anybody did anything sinister. People learned of this link and thought, well, I want the vaccine. I'm getting on the list. Mm -hmm. And then I guess they were overrun with it. Uh, it's in more evidence that when this is all over, we really need a public accounting of whether county health boards should continue to exist or if there's a better way to do this. Yeah. Why I, wait? You, you <laughs> mentioned this earlier, but there's just so little information out there. I think that people are like, well, shouldn't I? I should be pre-registered somewhere. So somebody knows that I'm 65 and older and I should be in the line somewhere. And they're just kind of grasping at straws because there's no nobody's told them how it's going to work. Because they haven't figured it out. Right. And that's the terrifying thing. Let's, they have all this time and they have not done it. Let's let's spread the blame around, though, because, you know, I, I don't think the federal government is giving states what they need. You know, we're, we're getting we're getting the 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 vaccine, but we don't we're, we're not getting any money from the federal government to create the proper infrastructure to to give out this these vaccinations. It, it, it's. It's look, it's I've said this many times on this podcast and I will continue to say it until, you know, hopefully I don't take my last breath from COVID because I can't get a vaccine. But we have failed at every conceivable level at addressing this virus. And and this is the latest level that we failed on. And and it's and it's every part of the government. I, I think there is shared blame from every county health board all the way up to the president of the United States. And, and, and I think there needs to be accountability at every level, but I don't know that we'll see that. Well, hopefully when the new president of the United States takes office, he'll try and right that ship. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What did we learn about how Larry Householder wielded his power from records released last week in the $60 million state house bribery scheme? And what's the latest court to put a hold on the fees we were going to have to pay as a result of that scheme. Jane Cahoon, reporter John Caniglia, was on fire during the holidays. I think he did this story, too. Uh, there was a big records dump that required quite a bit of sifting, but what he found in it was pretty interesting. Yeah, this really uh, gave us a closer look at these backroom dealings, which were not pretty at all. That This was like thousands of pages of records that got released Wednesday. They, they're from information that federal authorities had subpoenaed from from the Ohio State House regarding uh, the probe. So there, there's all kinds of drafts of bills, texts, you know, letters, et cetera. And, uh, you know, we already knew that Householder was putting the heat on State Representative Dave Greenspan, now former State Representative uh, Greenspan of of Westlake, who, who voted against the bill and and uh, was helping the FBI in this case because he was getting texts from Householder. But there were more details ab about that in, in these documents. Uh, he also got texts from Householder's top aide, Jeff Longstreth, who's, who's also indicted in this scheme. Uh, and, and Longstreth told Greenspan, you know, that if 4,000 jobs are lost in an election year, you're, you're, you're going to get the blame. Everyone in office will get the blame. And then uh, Householder also sent Greenspan a text saying, nobody comes after the team without consequences. 
and you know we all know about team householder and and what their their goals were but you know interestingly they also revealed another um lawmaker Rick Carfagna who's a Republican from Delaware County he he texted an associate about getting a call from Governor Mike DeWine in in the days before the House Bill 6 vote the the nuclear bailout that was stunning yeah saying you know DeWine's urging him to to vote for it uh, although Carfania ended up voting against it. But uh, it, I thought this was really interesting. The text from Carfania to his associate says, after every conversation I had with someone on this, I felt like I needed a shower. No wonder First Energy Solutions is bankrupt. Everyone is on its payroll. The, this bill has bad news written all over it, both politically and policy-wise. So, you know, one he smart knew, guy. As, yeah. Yes, as as lots of people did, that this thing stunk to to high heaven. So the, it was, you know, it was pretty revealing. But the wine's uh, news was interesting coming on the heels of the news the week earlier that he and his daughter's campaign had gotten some of the dark money from First Energy. Mike mm-hmm. DeWine, who had managed for months to kind of stay above the fray on this, is looking worse and worse in the First Energy scandal and and we'll have to see as it as it continues to go. Let's not leave out the public face of the legislature's continued appeasement of this utility, Bill Seitz. His name was in there, too. Right, right. Saying, oh, isn't this wonderful? All these smart people in southwest Ohio where he's from, you know, voted for House Bill 6 because, oh, it's the right thing to do. And, you know, he had some exchange with Householder about that. But um, speaking of the legislature's in action on this during their lame duck session, we now have two courts that have have stepped into this, uh, as you asked in your in your question. The Ohio Supreme Court a week ago uh, postponed the collection of these uh, 170 million in in fees, the subsidies involving House Bill Six, and this was a, a case uh, I believe filed by the Ohio Manufacturers Association, and they were challenging how the PUCO had implemented these fees. They they called them unlawful, unjust, and unreasonable. But the but the Supreme Court went ahead and, and put a hold on that too. So uh, where the legislature has refused to act, the, the courts have on this. Right. You have, because you have legislators like Bill Seitz trying to figure out a deal that'll keep that money available to the, to the nuclear plants. It's kind of amazing. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Two infamous Northeast Ohio murders died over the holidays. Who were they and why were they infamous? Chris Warnowski, they're kind of unrelated, but not because they're both from Northeast Ohio. Right. So first, let's talk about Samuel Little, who is considered one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. He is a native of Lorraine, and he has has confirmed 60 victims who died. He, he has also admitted to several other murders. He, he confessed to killing 93 people between 1970 and 2005, but so far they've only been able to pin about 60 of them on him. So he passed away. At, he had a series of health issues, diabetes, heart problems, and other ailments. He died in a California hospital where he had been lodged pretty much since his his arrest a couple years ago. Um, the other one that I think is is a little more interesting was a gentleman uh, by the name of, of Ramel Broom, who uh, was convicted of killing a 14-year-old girl in Cleveland in 1984, and he died of the coronavirus last week. And he was he was interesting in the sense that he 
he survived an execution attempt back in 2009 um, when they the, the prison officials could not find a vein sturdy enough to accept a lethal drug cocktail. And they spent all, almost two hours poking him with needles, trying, uh, I think, 18 times without success to, to execute him. And they ended up postponing it. Um, while prison officials figured out what to do. And you sort of pointed out before we started the podcast today that this was, this was kind of what set the ball rolling for Ohio to basically put a almost permanent moratorium on executions here. I, I mean, we've had a couple in the interim, but, but for the most part, they're pretty much done for. And, and he was, they kept pushing his back and back and back. And then he, he died of the coronavirus. So, um, so it, it's, it's, I mean, that was a, that was a pretty big case and, you know, it, and, and, and it opened the door for a, a very serious examination of the, the sort of uh, cruelty of what was happening to a lot of these people who were, were on death row. Yeah, and I, I believe that's the second person on death row who Ohio hasn't executed, but the coronavirus is, has. So it was a, it, it, it he, he, I think you, I think he really was the beginning of where we are now. That was the first real difficulty in execution. Jane, you noted before the podcast, the guy that was gasping as they, um, as they put him under. I mean, there've been a lot of problems with, with executions, but think about the start of this. I mean, they tried to execute him 25 years after the murder, which is another problem with executions is that very long period of time and very expensive to, to get done. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Why is the Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly criticizing a new fee being charged by DoorDash in Cleveland to deliver food to people? This is one of those late, late in the week stories last week, Laura, but a good one. Yeah. So the idea is that Cleveland City Council went out of its way to try and help out these restaurants that have been suffering during the coronavirus and were giving up up to like 30% of what customers are paying to delivery services like DoorDash, Uber Eats and those. So they added a one, um, they, they said you can't charge more than 15%. So DoorDash in response added a $1 Cleveland fee to customers who order food delivered from restaurants within the city limits. And that it didn't go over very well with Cleveland. Kelly said, I believe DoorDash is taking advantage of a sector of the economy that's not doing very well. And he pointed out that the pandemic has actually helped these delivery services. So they're kind of benefiting from these this other business's demise. DoorDash issued a statement defending this the fee. They said that there are unintended consequences of those measures. In some cases, that means charging customers an additional fee when they order to help ensure that we can continue to offer them convenient delivery while helping to ensure that dashes are active and earning. But um, this does seem like a they're saying, well, you, you can control that, but you can't control what we charge our customers. Yeah, I, it, it was a stunning turn. I mean, it was, okay, we can't charge a percentage. We'll, we'll call it a fee. Uh, it seems like they're just renaming what they're doing. It'll be interesting to see if Cleveland City Council takes aim at that. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What are the new rules for quarantining students who are exposed to the coronavirus in the classroom? Jane Cahoon, Mike DeWine has put teachers pretty high on the list for the vaccine because he wants kids in the classroom. This seems like it's part of that philosophy. What, what's the new rule? 
Yeah, I guess this will help keep kids in the classroom as well. They're they're no longer going to quarantine students who were exposed to the coronavirus in the classroom as long as the students were wearing their masks properly. It it only applies to cases in the classroom, not not for extracurriculars. And uh, they they should quarantine if they weren't following the mask rules at the time they were exposed. They Ohio had been following guidelines on school quarantines from the CDC uh, that say, you know, students in close contact with a classmate with COVID-19 should be quarantined. And close contact is defined as being within six feet of the student with a confirmed case for more than 15 minutes. But that led to concerns from superintendents about kids not being in school. And so they, they, Ohio put together a team of researchers to do some testing in schools and figure out, you know, whether students within that close contact guideline were more likely to, to contract COVID-19. And uh, they, they really found that it was about the same as those who, who were farther away or outside of the classroom, but in the same grade. So both rates were about uh, 3%, I guess. So, uh, so they decided to go ahead and, and, um, you know, uh, change the rule on that. And as you said, you know, the other thing they're doing is, is in the next round of priorities will be adult workers in schools, including teachers, uh, you know, for schools that plan to either maintain or return to in-person learning. So and they of uh, course have received absolutely no information about how that's going to happen. <laughs> and I can tell you that because I'm married to one. Yeah. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. That does it for our first episode of this new year. Our resolution on this podcast is to give you perspective and discussion you can find absolutely nowhere else. Thank you to everybody for listening to This Week in the CLE. If you have comments about it, send me an email at cquinn at cleveland.com. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. We'll be back tomorrow.